Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Turn with me again, if you will, please, to Paul's letter to the Philippian church, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. The theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians is, as we have said before, joy in Jesus Christ. Joy in Jesus Christ. It's a timely letter for us to study because there's so much in our world today that's depressing and discouraging. And many people are greatly affected by all the goings-on in our country and in our world to the point that they despair of life itself. People want to give up. And people want to uh, check out. Uh, They want to find something better, someplace better. They want a new life. They want something different Uh, from the life that they have. Because life can be painful. And for a lot of folks, life can be unbearable. But we need to be reminded, and I want to remind us, that joy, which the Apostle Paul speaks about again and again and again in this letter and in other letters that he had written, that joy is not happiness. Many people live for happiness, and they're so disappointed when that happiness uh, does not come to them. When they don't experience happiness in their job, they don't experience happiness in their home, they don't experience happiness in relationships, they don't experience happiness in who they are. And when they come to the scripture and they read what the Apostle Paul says about joy and having joy and rejoicing in all things, they scratch their head and they wonder what in the world is he talking about? It is because we have not come to understand the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is almost always situational and circumstantial. It's almost always situational and circumstantial. But joy is relational. Happiness has to do with the situation that you find yourself in, the circumstances that you're experiencing. But joy comes from the relationships that you have built in your life, particularly the relationship that you have with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand also that happiness can be manufactured. Happiness can be manufactured. You can go down to the local mini-mart and lay down a couple of bucks and buy a lottery ticket, and if you're lucky, uh, you may win some money, and that will make you happy, but only for a short while. You can be happy because your significant other says that 
She will marry you on such and such a date, at such and such a time. And you may be uh, overjoyed by that. You may be excited about that, and she may be excited about that too. (laughs) But when the honeymoon's over... Many of us enjoy our children. Some of us not for long. (laughs) We love our children. We rejoice. I I can remember when Anna was born. I can remember when Aaron was born. Nancy and I were excited. We were thrilled. And when they spoke their first word, when they took their first steps, when they... Uh, could sit at the table and start to feed themselves. And, uh, you know, even when they started to dress themselves in the weird and strange ways that they would dress themselves, we delighted in that. We were happy about that. We rejoiced in that. And then came the teenage years. (laughs) They were not always happy years. Even though we loved our children, we're talking about joy being relational, but circumstances (laughs) were not always happy circumstances. But while happiness can be situational and circumstantial, joy is a gift from God. Joy is a gift from God. Understand that. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the Apostle Paul wrote, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And like all gifts from God, and listen carefully, like all gifts from God, we have to receive His joy And we have to choose to live in his joy despite our circumstances. We have to receive that gift from God, that joy from God. It has to be received. And we have to choose to appropriate it in our lives. To the Jews, joy is an exuberant delight. It is a cheerfulness or an amusement that entertains and brings pleasure. Kind of like happiness. But Christian joy is different. Christian joy is different from the Jewish concept of happiness. It's choosing to respond. It is choosing to respond. It is choosing To respond, not react, but to respond, a choice to respond to external circumstances with inner contentment and peace and satisfaction, knowing that God will use whatever situation, whatever circumstance, whatever experiences that we have to accomplish his work in us and through us. That's what joy is is really all about. Now, joy does have the emotional 
aspect to it. It has an emotional dimension to it. But the core reality of joy is what God is blessing you with and what God will use in your life to accomplish his will and his purpose. And in knowing that it is God who is leading you, God who is guiding you, God who is directing you, God who is orchestrating these situations and circumstances around you in order to accomplish his will, knowing that he is doing this in you and through you is what brings the true Christian joy. Now, we may not always be happy, but we can always be joyful. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul wrote, And those who are Christ's, those who are Christian, those who belong to Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. An important verse to remember. Those who belong to Christ have crucified, they have died to the flesh and to its passions and desires. Therefore, beloved, we're not in life to seek out happiness. We're in life to live in His joy. Because we've crucified those worldly, fleshly desires and pursuits. He goes on to say, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. The word walk means to live. To live in the Spirit. Let us also live every day, every moment of every day in light of the Spirit's presence in our lives. So, for joy to fill us, for joy to take control of our spirit, for joy to be at the very center of our lives, we need to choose to die to self, to die to worldly emotions and desires, and to live under the control and the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the Apostle James wrote in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, My brethren, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, when you experience difficult times, hardship, heartache, burden, sorrow, sadness. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God allows sorrow and sadness to come into our lives. God allows heartache and burden to enter into our experiences. God allows death. God allows broken relationships. God allows loss of job. God allows financial reversal. God allows broken health to come into our experiences, not because he delights in watching us suffer, but because he delights that in these things we will grow closer to him, we will depend more upon him, and we will find in him the joy that is necessary to see us through those difficult times. And so I ask you this morning, my friends, do you have joy? 
flooding your soul? Is the gift of God's joy overwhelming your spirit? Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have become ill with COVID. And you've had family members that have become ill with COVID. Some of you have lost your employment. Some of you have not recovered from the year and so many months that we were off the job and unable to move around like we would like to. Some of us have seen very dark and difficult days in the latter part of 2020 and, well, all of 2020 and most of 2021. But despite all of these things, my friends, is the joy of the Lord still present, still evident in your spirit, in your soul this morning. That's why the Apostle Paul could experience joy in trials and in tribulation. That's why he could write to the Philippian church of his joy in the Lord, even though he was chained to a Roman prison guard. He was... He was not happy about it, but he chose to rejoice in it. So in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, the apostle writes, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now this statement is part of a larger context of Scripture that begins in verse 19 and continues on through verse 26, wherein the Apostle speaks of four issues that could have robbed him of his joy in the Lord. The first one is his circumstance. And at this point in time, his circumstance was that he was in prison. And he wasn't in prison because he badmouthed the emperor. He wasn't in prison because he robbed a bank. He wasn't in prison because he took someone's life. He wasn't in prison because uh, he destroyed uh, public property. He was in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was his crime. He was a Christian. And he declared the lordship of Jesus Christ. And for that, he was imprisoned. The second issue that could have robbed him of his joy in the Lord was opposition from Jews and Christians that hated him. You know there are brothers and sisters today, hundreds of them, thousands of them, who are living, who are ministering in countries that hate Christianity. And they're dying for it. They're being arrested, they're being imprisoned, they're being tortured, and many of them are giving up their lives this very day for no other reason than they are Christians ministering in non-Christian countries that hate them. But Paul did not allow that to rob him of his joy in the Lord. He knew that the Jews hated him. He knew that the Romans hated him. He knew that there were some Christian preachers out there that hated him. They were jealous of him. But it didn't take away his joy. 
As a matter of fact, he said, I'm glad those guys are out there preaching. Even though they hate me, they're preaching the gospel. And I rejoice in the fact that the gospel's being preached. Even by those who despise me. That's okay. I am, you know, I'm square with that. The third reason that he could have lost his joy but chose not to was the real possibility of execution. The real possibility of execution. He was in a Roman prison. He appealed his case to the emperor of Rome. And there was a very real possibility that the emperor would say, I don't care about your faith. I don't care about your activities. I don't care about the case that's brought before me. Take his head off. And eventually that did happen. But not at this point in time. The fourth issue that could have robbed him of his joy in the Lord was the burden of living in the flesh. The burden of living in the flesh. And we'll get to that in just a bit. He said, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain reveals the principle the core principle of Paul's Christian life. For me to live is Christ. That's the cause of which to die, in gain, to die is gain is the effect. For me to live is Christ. The cause. The cause for his calling. The cause for his ministry. The cause for the difficulties that he experienced in life. The cause for his imprisonment but also the cause for his joy, for me to live is Christ. That's the cause. To die is gain. That's the effect. To be called by Christ means to die to the flesh. To be called by Christ means to die to my own goals and to my own purpose in, in life. For me to be living in Christ means that I have to give up, and I, and I willingly gave up, everything that was important to me when I was being trained as a Pharisee, when I was being employed by the Pharisees to round up Christians and bring them to trial and stand over their execution. But for me to live as Christ, I gave all of those up. A radical change in my life. A new direction, a new purpose, a new meaning to who I am. To die is gain. I died to the flesh. I died to self. I died to the worldly lusts and desires. I died to sin. I died to Satan. I died to everything that I once cherished. That's the effect of the cause to live in Christ. And so for a Christian to live for Christ, he has to die to self. He has to die to sin. He has to die to the world. He has to die to the flesh. He has to die to Satan. And I'm not saying that's easy, because it's not. But it is necessary. When a Christian lives for Christ, physical death. Now, hear me. When a Christian truly lives for Christ... Physical death is no longer an issue. It is no longer an issue. And I'm going to focus, I want to focus our attention on that clause in this particular verse. To die is gain. 
When a Christian lives for Christ, physical death is no longer an issue. Why? Because the Apostle Paul learned this principle that uh, we stated last Sunday, and I'll repeat it again this morning in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul could say, I've already died to all of the things that were once important to me. I don't even fear death anymore because Christ is living in me. And I've died to all of those concerns. I've died to all of those issues. I've died to all of those emotions. I've died to all of those things that I once longed for and cherished before I met Jesus Christ. Now again, last Sunday we dealt with the first part of this verse, for to me to live is Christ. And I want to zero in this morning on to die is gain. We're all well acquainted with the reality of death, are we not? And we have made, been made um, more acutely aware of that in recent months. But I don't think that David the shepherd... I don't think that David the shepherd would understand our attitude regarding death. In the 23rd Psalm, he sang in verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. And when he meant by the Lord is my shepherd, he meant the Lord is my constant companion. The Lord is my dearest friend. The Lord is my provider. Franz Dalich the great Hebrew scholar wrote, quote, He who has Jehovah, the possessor of all things, himself has all things, and he lacks nothing. I love that. In, you know, bringing it up to date in popular vernacular, we would say, The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. But when considering death, David sang these words, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then he went on to say, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And my point is this. There's no note of sorrow or anguish or grief in this song. When he contemplates his own death, he does not do so with fear and trepidation. He does not do so with anxiety in his spirit. He does not do so dreading the time of that event. David saw death in a totally different way than many of us do. The Apostle Paul wouldn't understand our approach and our attitude regarding death either. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, the apostle wrote, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. And yet, sometimes we grieve over our own approaching death or over the approaching death of a loved one or a friend as though the hope we have in Jesus Christ is somehow insufficient to deal with the sorrow and the grief. Paul said, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It was something he was looking forward to. It was something that he didn't recoil away from. It was something that he was drawn to. And let me give you three reasons why I believe that to be true. First of all, all of this is related to what I've been speaking about thus far concerning death. And it's, it's simply this. And, and we need to grasp this. We need to hold on to this. We need to understand this. The possibility of life and the certainty of death rests in God's hands. Don't ever forget that, friend. The possibility of continued life and the certainty of death rests in God's hands. In Philippians chapter 1, look at verses 19 through 26. Note the attitude of the Apostle Paul. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, and the only way you can do that, what? Is through death. And he says, I desire that. That's something I look forward to. I'm hard pressed between the two, having the desire to depart to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul said in verse 20 that Jesus Christ would be made great. That's the word magnify. He will be made great in him by his life or by his death. In verse 21, he said that his life, since his Damascus Road conversion, was focused solely on Jesus Christ. His death would also be focused on Jesus Christ because he saw that death is just as important an aspect of living as birth is. He confessed that his inner struggle over which is better for him to stay and to continue on in ministry or to die and to be with the Lord was a real struggle. 
in verses 22 and 23. And he knew that to live on in the flesh would be beneficial to the saints. Verse 24 and verse 26. And then he came to the conclusion that that would really be the case for him in verse 25. But I want you to note verse 22. I want you to look at verse 22. What does he say? But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. Even though the Apostle Paul was torn between living and dying, he didn't know which he would choose. And that's a very poor translation of the Greek verb in this particular verse. The verb should have been translated prefer. Prefer. And why would I say that? Well, because we can desire to live and we can desire to die. I know people who at this very moment desire to die. And I know a lot of people who desire to continue to live. We can desire to live or we can desire to die. We can prefer to live or we can prefer to die. Even though we may choose to live or choose to die, that's not really our decision. It's not really our decision. God determines whether we live or die. Now let me explain that to you, okay? Because I know there are a lot of people who are confused about this. Because we want to put circumstances and situations into the mix and say, well, uh, you know, I, so-and-so died because he was in a car wreck, so-and-so died because he was in an airplane crash, so-and-so died because of this, that, or the other. And we want to say, well, the, the, the deciding factor here was the situation. The deciding factor was the circumstance. No, it wasn't. Not if you know Scripture you'll realize that situations and circumstances have nothing to do with the determination of living or dying. It may be the vehicle through which one is accomplished, but it is not the determining factor. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, the Apostle Paul said that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. And that word... Well, it's one word in the Greek, but in, in your English, all things. That's all-inclusive. Everything that happens is according to God's will. Now, I know some of you struggle with that. I do not struggle with that because I believe, as Scripture teaches, that God is the sovereign Lord over all creation. God is the sovereign Lord over all creation. God did not create things and set them in motion and then took a vacation to let it all work out some way, somehow. No. God is actively involved in everything that goes on in what He has created. And since He created you, He's actively involved in what's going on in your life. You may not recognize that. You may not even appreciate that. But the truth remains that God's will is being worked out in your life as it is in all of God's creation. There is no action that lies beyond 
God's will. John Piper wrote these words, quote, God determines when everybody dies and he decides that in eternity. God determines when everybody dies and he decides that in eternity. God is sovereign over all things, including giving life, sustaining life, and taking life. He works all things, even our birth, our death, according to his divine will. In Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, the apostle said, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life breath, and all things. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. He even cares about the life of the sparrow? Absolutely. Why? Because it's part of his creation. And he is keenly aware of the death of even an insignificant creature like a sparrow. Let me give you one more. Hopefully this will seal the deal for you. In Job chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you have incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but you can't take his life. Spare his life. Now, Given the fact that the book of Job was probably the first piece of Hebrew literature ever written and predates in its writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and I believe since the book of Job was authored by Moses, probably heard about Job while he was out in the backside of the Sinai taking care of Jethro's sheep out there. It's an amazing thing to see the theology that is written in the book of Job. And here is one key important element of that theology, and that is that 
Life can be tough. Life can be hard. Life can be dangerous. Satan is the enemy of God and and the enemy of God's people. And Satan is out to destroy everything that God has created. And yet God maintains control. And even though he will allow Satan to touch his people, and even though he will allow Satan to create situations and circumstances, it is God who maintains sovereign control over all life, including yours, including mine. It is the Lord who gives life. It is the Lord who sustains life and takes life. Regarding Job, the Lord said to Satan, You incited me against him to destroy him without cause. Behold, he is in, his, in your hand, but you spare his life. You can't touch him and take away his life from him. So God allows Satan to tempt us, and God allows Satan to test us, but nothing And no one can take your life unless God allows it. Well, what about those who die in a plane crash? What about those who die in a car crash? What about those who are terminally ill? He is the sovereign Lord over their lives as well. And it may look like a situation or a circumstance is what affected their demise, but no, it is God who determines it. Terminal illness may be the vehicle through which that is accomplished. A car crash may be the vehicle through which that is accomplished. A plane crash or a train wreck may be the vehicle through which that is accomplished, but it is God who holds life in His hand. And no one can take a life from his hands. So to die was gain for the Apostle Paul because he knew that death did not rest in the hands of the Roman emperor. It did not rest in the hands of the Roman guard. It didn't rest in the hands, the plans, the plots of the Gentiles or the Jews or even the Christians who hated him. If he lived, it was because God had decreed it. If he died, it was because God had ordained it. And Paul rejoiced in that. He wasn't afraid of it. He wasn't anxious over it. He didn't despise nor regret it. He rejoiced that God was in full control of his life and his death. Second, to die is gain because in our dying we leave burdens and cares, the trials and the troubles of this life behind. And I I would venture to say that for most people, including Christians, that's one of the one things that if you know if there is a if there is a good side if there is a bright side if there is a positive point to our dying it's that that we're going to leave the sorrows and the concerns of this world behind us we're going to leave the troubles and the trials of this world behind us and is that valid is that legitimate absolutely yes it is in second corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 to 28 and i want to read it to you out of god's word rather than the New King James, because it will help you to understand it a little better. The Apostle Paul writes, I've been in prison many times, been beaten severely, and have faced death often. 
Five times the Jewish leaders had me beaten with 39 lashes. Three times Roman officials had me beaten with clubs. Once people tried to stone me to death. Three times I was shipwrecked and I drifted on the sea for a night and a day. Because I've traveled a lot, I've faced dangers from raging rivers, from robbers, from my own people, and from other people. I've faced dangers in the city, in the open country, on the sea, and from believers who turned out to be false friends. Because I have worked so hard, I've often gone without sleep, been hungry and thirsty, and gone without food and without proper clothes during cold weather. Besides these external matters, I have the daily pressures of my anxiety about all the churches. Paul's saying, these are the things that I have suffered. These are my trials. These are my tribulations. These are the things that I had to look forward to and the things that I experienced when I surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Sometimes we think we have it tough as Christians in America or in California. And maybe we do. Maybe you do. Sometimes we believe that things can't get any worse than what it is. And maybe it won't for some. But the days are coming. And I've been saying this for many years now. And it's true because we see it happening. The days are coming when Christians in this country will be treated like many are treated in countries around the world. We will be hated above measure. We will be hunted down, we will be tortured, and we will be killed. And I know that there are people here this morning who will say, well, won't the rapture come before then? And my response is, well, do you know when the day and the hour is when the rapture is going to come? Anybody here? We know that the Lord is coming again. We don't know when He's coming again, but we know He's coming again. And the signs are all around us that His coming is very, very near. But my friends, we may have to go through some very difficult times, very difficult, difficult times as Christians before that day comes. And I would also want to remind you that we know that once a nation starts down the path of unrepentant sin towards God, God will give that nation over to its full destruction. And all you have to do is read Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32. And all you have to do is to go back in your history and look at Egypt and look at Greece and look at Rome and even look at the Jewish nation to find the truth in that. Death is gain for the Christian because it is a relief and it is a release from the presence and the power and from the punishment of sin. But there is an even greater gain to dying than that experience of release. A greater gain in dying. And that is that we will fully and finally be in the presence of Jesus. We will fully and finally be in the presence of Jesus. Look at verse 7 through 11, Philippians chapter 1, uh, excuse me, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. 
Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. The Apostle Paul wrote, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The longing of the soul that is saved is that one day we will see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ face to face. We will attain the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Our righteousness will be completed in Jesus Christ. Our faith will be made full in Jesus Christ. And the power of his resurrection will empower our own resurrection. That's what Paul meant when he said to die is gain. In the fellowship of his suffering here, we will gain the full fellowship of his presence over there. We will rejoice in the reunion of family and friends and fellow saints who've gone on before us and of those who will come after us. And I look forward to that day, I'll be honest with you. I look forward to seeing my mother and my father, and my older brother Bill, and my grandfather and grandmother on both sides of the family. I look forward to seeing my uncle Fred, who was a minister of the gospel in the Methodist church down in Diamond Bar, Southern California. I look forward to seeing all of my aunts and my uncles. I look forward to seeing my friends, my professors that have gone on to be with the Lord in heaven. I long to see the Apostle Paul. I long to see Peter, James, and John. I long to see Mary, the mother of Jesus. I long to see all of these individuals that Scripture talks about. Moses, my hero. Abram. Isaac, Jacob, Solomon. There's another person I long to see. A lot of people don't think he's in heaven, but Scripture says he is. Old Nebuchadnezzar. Old Nebuchadnezzar, who conquered the Jews, but later on in his life repented of his sin, came to faith in the Lord. I long to see the host of heaven. I long to see the angels. I long to hear the songs of the saints. I long to see the glories that lie ahead of me. But nothing, nothing will compare to seeing my Lord face to face. Nothing will compare 
to see his nail-scarred hands outreached to bring me into the kingdom. Nothing will compare to sitting at the feet of Jesus and touching those nail-scarred feet and hearing his voice as he speaks to me, and I pray that commendation will be mine. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Nothing will compare to seeing Jesus. Charles H. Gabriel wrote these words way back in 1900. A hymn that I used to love to sing as a child and we sing it from time to time here in this church. When all my labors and trials are o'er and I am safe on that beautiful shore just to be near the dear Lord I adore will through the ages be glory for me. Friends will be there I have loved long ago. Joy like a river around me will flow. Yet just a smile from my Savior I know will through the ages be glory for me. Glory for me. Glory for me. Oh, that will be glory for me when by His grace I shall look on His face. Oh, that will be glory. Be glory for me. Stand with me, David. Come and lead us in a song and we will be dismissed. And as we go into a new week ahead of us, may we leave today embracing the joy the Lord gives us and each morning may this be our heart. Praise God from all blessings flow. Praise Him Praise Him above the heavenly host. Shout it out. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.